Support for this episode of Big Biology comes from Sable Systems. There's basically no other company that has had such a big impact on my research. I started using some of their products to do insect respirometry when I was a postdoc, and I fell in love with their modular, intuitive, easy-to-use machines. And when I got my next job, I bought a whole respirometry system based on their gear. You know, I was always surprised by the way they encouraged me to modify their devices myself. Most companies ominously tell you that opening the device voids their warranty. Sable Systems Gear is designed by working scientists to understand that every experimental setup is unique and that systems have to be highly customizable. The devices are unfussy, robust, and easy to set up. You can find their products at sablesys.com. That's S-A-B-L-E-S-Y-S dot com. In the 1950s and 60s, the neurobiologist Roger Sperry and his student Michael Gatzeniga studied differences between the left and right hemispheres of the brain. They focused on epilepsy patients who had undergone surgeries to sever connections between hemispheres. Surgery typically relieved their seizures, but it also made it much harder for their hemispheres to communicate. The patients behaved normally most of the time, but in some experiments they behaved almost like they had two minds. In some cases, the right side of the brain could see and process an image without the left side of the brain even knowing about it. For Pat Churchland, these results were an epiphany. And I thought, this is it. This really shows us that not only are our mental states, brain states, but that we can learn totally unpredictable things about ourselves from neuroscience. And that motivated me to go down to the medical school one fine fall day and said, you know, I'm a philosopher, but I realize I need to know neuroscience and to know anything in neuroscience, I have to know the anatomy. Pat is a professor emerita at the University of California, San Diego, and an adjunct professor at the Salk Institute. She's also a neurobiologist and philosopher and the founder of the field of neurophilosophy. The idea that mental states are brain states raised a lot of philosophical questions for her. For example, can neurobiology explain our philosophy or our political beliefs and even conscience itself? How does an evolutionary perspective change our thinking about conscientiousness? In her latest book, Conscience, Pat explores the origins of our moral intuitions. She defines conscience as the motivation to do social good, often at some cost to ourselves. Most of us experience conscientiousness as an intangible sense of what we should do, Pat tries to understand the neurobiological origins of these feelings. She says, for example, that our moral beliefs likely are linked to our brain's reward systems, which have evolved to give us hits of dopamine and endocannabinoids when we do moral things like taking care of other people. On this episode, we talk with Pat about connections between neuroscience and philosophy, and what neuroscience has to say about morality, politics, and cross-cultural communication. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. We just wanted to start by talking about your your career in both philosophy and, and neurobiology. And, um, you know, for a, a mechanistic biologist like myself, I, I grasp the biological side. I'm, I'm much less familiar with the philosophical side. And I'm just curious about how you came to put those things together. And, you know, how, how do you span that gap between neurobiology and, and philosophy? Well, when I started at college, of course, I had no idea uh, what I really wanted to do, except that, of course, I, I was rather captured by the idea that we could really understand new things 
um, about human nature and how we worked. And uh, psychology in those days, so this would have been in the early 60s, was still very much in the, in the grip of behaviorism. And that didn't interest me very much. But mm. philosophers seemed, so far, at least in the historical figures we were studying, to really be addressing serious questions about the nature of problem solving and perception and so forth. And in particular, of course, I was thrilled by David Hume. Mm-hmm. So, so fast answer is I was under the misapprehension that contemporary philosophers were really interested in these subjects and would really be advancing knowledge in them. Mm-hmm. But it turned out once I was a graduate student, I finally realized that they weren't actually interested in the phenomena. They were interested in words. <laughs> and some of them actually had a backwards way of thinking about this. They thought that if they studied the words, they'd learn about the phenomena. <laughs> and once I realized, no, no, seriously, they'd and, still and, think and, this. And, and so you mean they, they don't care about the biology underneath it all? Is, is no, no, yeah. no. Yeah. And they sort of think that by studying the words and analyzing the words, they'll actually put limits on biology. Hmm. And once I kind of realized that, I thought, this is nuts. Hmm. So, but of course, uh, you know, you have to finish graduate school. So I did finish. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I did get a job. But when we were in Manitoba, the split brain results came out. And the split brain results, and just let me remind you what they were. So these were cases of surgery on human subjects for a condition known as intractable epilepsy, meaning that people had many, many seizures during the day and they could not be controlled by drugs. And surgeons had the idea that you could partially at least control epilepsy if you separated the two cerebral hemispheres. And when they did this, they found out, by gosh, it worked. And they didn't notice anything much at first, but then they began under careful studies in Roger Sperry's lab at Caltech to realize that consciousness in effect was also separated, that uh, one hemisphere could see something that the other couldn't, could know something that the other didn't. And I thought, this is it. This really shows us that not only are our mental states, brain states, but that we can learn totally unpredictable things about ourselves from neuroscience. And that motivated me to go down to the medical school one fine fall day. I went in to see the head of the anatomy department, one John Baskerville Hyde, who is a lovely Englishman, and said, you know, I'm a philosopher, but I realize I need to know neuroscience and to know anything in neuroscience, I have to know the anatomy. Well, he was pleased about that, and he said, okay, this is wonderful. You can come to the medical school as often as you want, take as many classes as you want. And then he introduced me to the neurologists, the clinicians who said, oh, yes, we have a very interesting practice here in in Manitoba because Manitoba is a huge province, bigger than Texas. (laughs) And uh, so our catchment area for neurological patients is huge and we see really, really interesting patients that 
you will be interested in. And of course, I went to neurology rounds every week and it was mind blowing. I mean, I learned things that changed how I thought about things forever. (laughs) And it was great. Um, And of course, now people are much more restrictive about philosophers wandering into a clinic and and talking to neurological patients but then the neurologists were quite happy to let me do that and god it was Hmm. amazing what a great experience it was how how has the field of uh, i think it's neurophilosophy correct yeah how how has the field grown and expanded and is it a really active area now or how does that how does that go let me put it this way initially neurophilosophy when the book came out philosophers by and large so hated it that I was practically (laughs) shamed out of the field uh oh they just loathed it because it 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 of course proposed something that didn't involve analyzing words anymore it involved you know looking at data so they didn't Mm -hmm. like that uh but I would say over time, what has happened is the old guard has stuck to its its uh, wordy way, and the young philosophers are are doing neurophilosophy in some cases. But I'll tell you what the other thing that happened, and I know this because whenever I give a talk, people tell me, um, is that a lot of young people who who read neurophilosophy when it first came out were in philosophy and thought, Jesus, she's right. I'm going into neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And they left. And so part of what changed the field of philosophy is that instead of getting pressure within from graduate students who knew the neuroscience, those graduate students left. Mm-hmm. And they left in droves. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah. And they're all over the place now. You know, Jonathan Pillow at uh, at Princeton, Matt Kaufman at at the University of Chicago, just to pick out a couple of names. Yeah, but, that's how but, generational change happens, right? And in yeah, all fields, it's the um, students that drive it. But yeah. I always felt a bit sad that that the philosophers, basically, that is the the ones who stayed in philosophy, really, really opposed everything that I did. So, Pat, what about the other side? Have um have the medical community come to embrace philosophy in any sense? Oh, I think so. Um, I, I think that they are not impressed by the idea that by looking at words and playing with words, you can learn about things, Mm -hmm. but, but there are things that the, the medical community, but more broadly, the neurobiological community is interested in such as the Mm -hmm. nature of explanation and what we think about reductionism. And, um, one of the ideas that we, that Paul and I had, and this is really owed more to Paul and to me was that, as neuroscience proceeds, it's likely to be the case that some of the major ideas and concepts that we use having to do with such things as decision making or problem solving, that those concepts are going to change because of what we discover in neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has clearly happened, for example, with regard to memory. So if you think about how people 
discussed or considered memory, let's say in 1960, and look at it now, it's a wholly different thing. We know so much about the many, many systems of plasticity in the human brain. We know memory isn't a single bank. You know, it's a whole <laughs> pile of stuff. We know that memories yeah. are not sort of put in there in the way you put pictures in an album, uh, that rather that memories are reconstructed, mm -hmm. uh, that you can get lose a hippocampus. This, I think, was an astonishingly important discovery for philosophers, but they didn't really take it seriously. You can lose a hippocampus and you will lose most of your autobiographical memory, but you will still have a sense of yourself. And one famous patient that I saw in this condition was Roger Boswell, who was a patient of the Damasios at, when they were at the University of Iowa. And Roger had suffered herpes simplex encephalitis. He had lost hippocampal structures plus cortical structures on both sides. He had no autobiographical memory, except that he was born in Iowa. That was it. And if you asked, but, but he did have a sense of himself. And when he met you, he was very polite. He, you wouldn't even know for the first couple of minutes that he had no autobiographical memory. Um, and you'd ask me, you'd say, well, Roger, were you married? And he'd say, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's hard to say. He'd never say, I can't, I can't remember. He'd say, oh, yeah. I said, did you play basketball? I bet you did because you're tall. Oh, well, you know, it's hard to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he was always very gracious, very charming, but he couldn't learn anything new and he couldn't. Uh, he had no access to autobiographical memory. Now, many, many years ago, John Locke, the philosopher in the, in the late 17th century, had said that autobiographical memory is essential for sense of self. And philosophers thought, well, yeah. And it seems like not a bad idea. It seems reasonable. Yeah, it's reasonable not, not unreasonable. But it turns out it's false. You do compromise your sense of self because our autobiographical memories are an important part of it. But it's not like you're a zombie. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. like you have no sense of yourself. He still has skills. He still has preferences. He knows how to comb his hair, how to brush his teeth, how to greet people in a polite and charming way. So anyway, that along with the split brain data really blows my mind still. So let's focus on the book, okay. and uh, we'll ask you to do something very, very simple. How about define conscience <laughs> and um, tell us something about what it means for someone to feel or act conscientiously? Yeah, well, first of all, it's kind of interesting that many languages have no word that is the equivalent of our word conscience. So bear mm. in mind that you can kind of know what it is without actually having a word for it. And in fact, this is true of ancient Greek. Uh -huh. the, the, the sort of fountainhead of many of the ways that I think about morality come from Socrates and Aristotle, and they didn't have a word for conscience. But anyway, we do. And what it tends to mean for us is that motivation in virtue of which we want to, to do a, a social good 
to produce mm -hmm. a social benefit, often at some cost to ourselves. When we know mm -hmm. what the right thing to do is, right? To tell the truth, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that motivation is complicated, needless to say, but we think of that as a, the voice of conscience. Hmm. All right. So we're going to talk about the various different neural mechanisms that, you know, facilitate ideas or, or ways of thinking about uh, mm. conscience. But um, being biologist, I would have to sort of put on that hat and ask, sure. what other animals do we know or do we expect to have consciences? That's a hard word to say. <laughs> no, it's very, very good question. And I think for a long time, people thought it was only humans that were motivated by moral emotions, by being willing to sacrifice yourself uh, for for others or sacrifice some aspect of your mm -hmm. own interest. This isn't true. It's clearly, and, and here I think we owe a huge debt to the ethologists, both those who are working with mammals in captivity, but also in the wild. And it's very clear that even rodents will act in a pro-social manner. That is, will incur a cost to themselves in order to provide a benefit to another. Sometimes that benefits in the form of food or in the form of defense or in the f just cuddling and grooming and caring. Mm -hmm. But we see it in all mammals. Now you might say, well, you know, we have social insects too. What about bees and termites? Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and Yes, they are social, but their social behavior is under very, very tight genetic control. What's different about mammals is that we have this wonder structure called cortex. And cortex, just to put it crudely, provides a kind of buffer between mm -hmm. our behavior and our genes. And so... <laughs> We see a lot more in the way of flexibility, of long-term planning, of sensitivity to ongoing conditions and so forth in the case of mammals, all mammals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. it may be especially so in the case of humans, but we certainly see it in wolves, in rodents, and in, in primates. Uh, so, and, and the examples here are, are really important, but, but, you know, we can go to Franz Duvall or Christoph Besch or many people who have worked with mammals, uh, and demonstrated this beyond a shadow of a doubt. Mm -hmm. Do we have, uh, you write a little bit in the book about birds. Um, do we have a lot of expectations that birds are doing the same thing? And there's a lot of diversity there. So calling it just birds is a, that's that a, a is real true. generalization. I know, yeah. that is true. 20 some thousand species, depending on how yeah, you look at yeah, the Yeah, birds seem also to, to have much the same organization uh, to support social behavior. Mm -hmm. And some birds are more social than others, just as some mammals are more social than others. But we certainly also see that uh, something like the capacity to know what others are thinking and intending and perceiving has been clearly mm -hmm. demonstrated in corvids, in crows. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we do see social, highly social behavior, especially, again, in corvids. But, I mean, it may mm -hmm. also be in other species that haven't been as closely looked at. So, but, of course, you know, as a biologist, that birds, strictly speaking, don't have cortex. 
but they right. have an analog of cortex. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. that, you know, to the visible eye, visibly, it, it doesn't look like cortex. But when you look at the wiring, there's the it's homology. Sort of fun- functionally a cortex. Yeah. 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 Great. Um, I wanted to ask a really broad question about um, your book, Conscience, which uh, is just totally fascinating. Um, and I'd say, you know, the to, to me, the sort of fundamental point that you're grappling with in the book is about how and why we are motivated to care about other people, to, you know, to engage yeah. in moral behaviors and to have a conscience. And, and, you know, you take a very sort of mechanistic turn there and explore very basic aspects of our our neurobiology and the way our brains are organized as a way to explain those moral behaviors that, that's kind of an amazing leap between you know this this sort of grand idea of a moral intuition and the basic mechanisms that are happening in our brain and and I'm convinced but you know how, how did you arrive at the idea that this was even possible? And, you know, what, what are the sort of key, key mechanistic things to think about uh, in, in, in relation to that question? It is a really good question. And I have to acknowledge that for most of my career, I did not see any real prospect that neuroscience would shed any light whatsoever on social behavior or on moral behavior in particular. Interestingly enough, this was a topic Francis Crick and I used to talk about. And Francis would say, look, there has to be a biological basis because it can't be that that humans and other animals undertake these self-sacrifices for pure reason. They don't do that. <laughs> they're motivated. They have emotions. They're compelled in a certain sense. There has to be a biological reason. And I said, but what could it be? How could it be there? And he said, well, it, you know, it's going to be something to do with the genes, obviously. But it, anyway, so we didn't know. But it wasn't so very long after he passed away, actually, that Larry Young came to give a talk at the Sulk. And it didn't, the title it was about voles and behavior, and it didn't look all that interesting, but I thought, I'll, I'll go. So <laughs> off I went. And, and of course, it turned out to be the story wherein Larry describes two species of voles, prairie voles and montane voles. And montane voles are kind of like what we think all non-human animals are like. The males and the females meet, they mate, and then they go off in their separate ways. The prairie voles, he explained, meet, they mate, and now they're bonded for life. And he explained exactly behaviorally what that means. They like to stay together. Most of their sexual activity involves each other. The male guards the nest. The male helps take care of the pups. And what's the difference in the brain is the question. And what they had shown, he and Tom Insel and and Sue Carter and others had shown was that a a principal thing, but not surely not the only thing that made the difference was this, the density of receptors for oxytocin in two very specific parts of the brain, in the old brain, in subcortical brain, and it was in the reward system. Hmm. And, and that just blew my mind. I thought, oh my God, 
attachment behavior between mates. I mean, we're, we're told in Sunday school that God wants us to do this, and this is why our parents stay together. <laughs> no, it turns <laughs> out it's the biology. And um, so, so I thought, there's got to be more of a story here. So I followed Larry Young's work very closely. I came to know Larry quite well and Sue Carter and some of the other people who were really involved in this. And I thought, this has got to be a major part of the story of how it is that mammals are social and how it is that mammals are moral. And so then, of course, I went back to think about the evolutionary story. It's not just that by luck, you know, the, there was a mutation and it spread through the population. Um, there has to be an explanation in terms of the conditions that truly favored this sort of behavior. And, and, and the rest of things then began to fall into place. Mm-hmm. So, so has has Larry Young or anybody else or, or you followed um, the thread from differences in densities of these oxytocin receptors in parts of the brain to functionally what what happens? So, so what do those receptors do to the way the neurons function? You know, what are the changes in those neural functions do to right. other circuits that are involved in attachment? You know, it seems like there's a bunch of mechanistic steps along the way. There are many mechanistic steps and much of which we don't understand, but uh-huh. we do understand a little bit. And that uh-huh. is that there is a relationship between the oxytocin receptors in the reward system and in and the nucleus accumbens. Uh-huh. And the nucleus accumbens is really important because that is part of what's the story for feeling pleasure. And so if you are going to feel pleasure in something and that's linked to the reward system, you're going to be doing that thing. It feels good. And so mm-hmm. when, when the babies fall out of the mother rat's nest, she, grab, she feels pain. <laughs> and she grabs those rats, puts them back in the nest, and then her nucleus accumbens signals like, with job, opioids, with done. endocannabinoids, good job, feels good. Uh-huh. Um, and almost certainly something like that happens with respect to humans and their offspring as well. Now, none of this is simple because, of course, all of these ancient structures are not, not terribly well understood and the wiring is being figured out, but, but it's, it's slow and it's very complicated. Mm-hmm. But it, certainly attachment is part of it and exactly how that's done is something that um, the Larry Young Lab is looking very closely at. And I think I mentioned in the book that they think part of what is important in attachment is smell especially for rodents, but not only for rodents, almost certainly for humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at, so smell is going to be important, but there are many other things too involving attention and what you pay attention to and so forth. Mm. So your your book is, is just so compelling. There's not too many things that sort of cover the philosophy as well as the neuroscience, as well as the detailed molecular biology and interweave an amazing story that, you know, anybody, it doesn't matter your level of education, you could usually pick up some amazing things. But I'm wondering, do you envision that the biology, like Larry has described with with, uh, oxytocin receptors, how far do you think you can take data like that 
and apply it to other systems. For example, there was a paper um, in PNAS not too long after that that the, the work on oxytocin got, got a lot of attention about uh, arginine vasopressin receptors. Right. And so we don't need to go into all the details, but if you want to talk about the role of vasopressin, that, that's great. But um, the, the big discovery there had been that differences in the sequences of promoters right. were sort of one of the things that distinguished the montane and the prairie. But when, when another group looked at those sequences right. in other voles, it, it, it wasn't exactly that way. The non-monogamous ones looked just like the monogamous ones. So in terms of generality of mechanism, the wheels started to fall off. And then, especially when you look at humans and primates, even the sequences are common. Yeah. They have a different evolutionary history. So how much do you expect to be able to connect these things? Is it about the functions or is it about the, the molecules, especially your conversations with Crick? I imagine, yeah. you know, in some sense, he would want to push it all the way back oh, yeah. to the oh, genes. Yeah, absolutely. But what we know about the genes for almost anything is that there's always a whole lot of genes that make a small contribution. I mean, I, mm. uh, this was taught to me many years ago by Ralph Greenspan, who said, look, Pat, consider height. You might think that you have your father's height, uh, and that's a gene. No, there's hundreds of genes involved in height, and they all make a small contribution. And that's going to be true of social mm -hmm. behavior as well. There may be mm -hmm. some parts of the genetic story that are discovered first because those make a special significant contribution, but we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. um, I always thought that, that the arginine vasopressin story was a bit too quick. That, that is, that there was a single gene that controlled the density of receptors for vasopressin, which is a sibling mm -hmm. um, molecule to oxytocin that vasopressin uh, was controlled by a single gene because nothing, nothing of any complexity ever is. Right. Yeah, just mm -hmm. not. Well, you mm -hmm. guys are the biologists, so. <laughs> there are a few examples, but yeah, you're usually. I mean, we're we're right. always skeptical of single gene explanations. Oh, yes, yeah. Very I mean, so. for a complex behavior, it's, it's, it's really, really, really unlikely. I mean, you know, right. you remember the old days when Chomsky used to talk about the gene for language, and we think, oh, mm -hmm. it was, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so no, no. Um, I, I think that getting the genetics of the story is going to be really complicated. But, you know, as Francis used to always say, well, you know, you have to be patient. It'll come. Mm -hmm. And there are systematic ways of, of going about getting answers, and eventually they'll come. Do you know of work, so the classic approach that would be taken by evolutionary biologists for things like this, although I'm going to be a little bit careful because the, to say classic opens up another Pandora's box that we don't need to talk about right, right. now. Um, but the, a, a typical, a conventional evolutionary biologist approach would be to ask about populations. Yes. Right. Yes, are, yes. There, are there? What do we know about differences in populations of the same species where we have an idea about their ecology? Yeah, yeah. Has anybody asked about in montane or prairie voles or, or things like this that the sort of you could see there are examples of you know the sort of process of evolution that produce yes. the story yes. that actually helps the the human case. Do we know anything about that? A little bit. Um, certainly, people are looking at that. But one difference between the prairie voles and the montane voles that is suggestive, of course, is that the montane voles live in mountainous areas. They can scurry under rocks. They make you know the they they. Uh, their safety doesn't depend on numbers. 
Whereas the prairie voles live on the open prairie and they are subject to predation, especially by uh, birds. And so, so it probably uh, has, ha, it, it, that is, it is likely that the conditions under which they were living favored the a high density of receptors for oxytocin and vasopressin. Um, that made social life more likely. Now, not all prairie voles mate for life. <laughs> I mean, this is biology. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's, it's always a bell curve. <laughs> <laughs> <Right. laughs> so, so, uh, um, so, yes, I, I think there has been some attempt to kind of look at that. I mean, we think, for example, that bears or orangs can be highly social but they tend not to be because their habitat and their lifestyle depends on them having a large territory. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a really interesting story that um, I don't think I talked about in the book, and this has to do with meadow voles. So meadow voles tend to be solitary, like montane voles. And in the spring, they, they mate, the moms have the babies, and then fall comes along and they begin to get kind of palsy with others. And then during mm-hmm. the winter, they live in groups, they have special friends, they cuddle together. And what happens in the brains? And it turns out in the lateral septum, again, an old structure, that oxytocin receptors are quite dense, the opposite of what you'd expect, are quite dense in the spring sort of turning off sociality and downgraded in the fall. They're quite sparse in the fall. So in that particular region, so it's not that oxytocin is a love molecule is what somebody once called it. It depends obviously on where it is in the wiring. So so in the case of these meadow voles, they're social part of the year and not so social in part of the year. So we will continue to find these things out and to find out that, you know, there's the story is, is richer and richer, of course, with every discovery. Yeah. Hmm. So, so it sounds like oxytocin is a kind of control molecule and, and how that's wired into the systems depends on the evolutionary outcome in particular lineages. It can, I it think. can be pro-social or anti-social sort of depending on, on circumstance. And yeah. I would predict, given what we've seen in the case of the meadow voles, I would predict that you're going to see something like that in bears, that yeah. they have a yeah. high density of receptors for oxytocin in the lateral septum. Yeah. But they can be very social. And there's this wonderful naturalist in New Hampshire who showed this, that mm. uh, they can be very social when resources are, are available. Mm. They, like, they like each other. They like humans. Well, I want to ask about a, a, a sort of broader issue about sort of reward systems in the brain. Um, and you have this nice section where you're talking about neural responses to uh, of, of neurons in, I think, human brains to good and bad events happening and the, the sorts of ways that 
that like pleasure and pain about those situations are encoded into the the neural responses and that focuses especially on dopamine and serotonin yeah which i think a lot of people you know have heard about because of their mm -hmm. roles in anxiety and depression mm -hmm. so so maybe just could you give us a a quick little you know primer on on dopamine and serotonin and the roles they play yeah uh so it turns out that um when a good thing is happens and it's unpredicted, your um, ventral tegmental area, the VTA, in the brainstem releases dopamine into the nucleus accumbens and basically says, whew, better than I thought, better than expected. Um, and but, but it's all about expectation. It's, right? it's all not, about It's not necessarily that it's good or bad. It's in relation to what you expected. Yeah. yeah. And so, so, but if it's good... Uh, a dopamine is released. If it's bad, this is oversimplified, but but yeah. this is the basic story. But if it's bad, serotonin is released. Yeah. And so serotonin basically says, yeah, you know, you probably don't want to do that again, or at least, you know, think about that. Um, so, so there is, to a first approximation, a kind of balance between expecting something good to happen, and it does, in which case life goes on, or ex not expecting something good to happen, and whoo, it does, and you get a big dopamine hit. So it is about expectation, and as long as things are going as expected, neither too painful nor too, too great, but as expected, nothing much happens. It's when the events change so that that uh, you get punished by the world or you get rewarded by the world, your brain changes. It says, whoa, that was nice. Yeah. Huh. Um, and it's a very, very powerful system. And it turns out that it's not just the case for, you know, getting sugary treats, uh, but it's also a norm prediction system. So it's involved in after we've learned something about norms in our uh, in our lives, uh, when the norm is violated or changes or shifts, the system is responsive to that. And in the chapter you're talking about, sometimes that happens without us actually even being aware that the norm has changed. Yeah, <laughs> huh. yeah, I know. I know. Do you, do you have an example of that? Huh. Well, um, the example in the book is a little bit technical, but it, it's, it is sort of the gold standard. But I, I think uh, a sort of casual example of this is how fashion changes. So, and the example that I like is, you know, when I was in eighth grade, I guess, I managed to get, make uh, a felt pink skirt with a poodle on it. And I had a pair of, <laughs> of saddle shoes and this kind of slightly uh, puffy blouse. And I just thought, you know, uh, that was the bee's knees. And of course, I look at it now and I'm, I think, God, that is so <laughs> dumb. But nowhere along the line, you know, did in my life, did I ever have a sort of negative uh, uh, experience with a pink poodle skirt. <laughs> no more poodles. Right, right. Just, so, so sort that, of a gradual resetting of the norms, it's right? It's a gradual yeah. resetting of the norms. And even now, you know, I look into my closet and I see something I got three years ago and it's so three years ago. 
you know, how how did it, you know, how did that happen? How did my sense of what was appropriate change without my even sitting down and thinking about it? It just does. And that's what's scary about many things in our society is that our norms can begin to shift because stuff is happening around us and we shift ourselves without realizing it. Yeah, I think that's where we, we wanted to go next. Okay. Before we, we before we get there, can I ask you ooh, how to articulate this question? Where does the good and the bad live in the brain? And and can you can you also address the fact that good and bad can change for an individual depending on a, a whole lot of yeah, different things? Yeah. You know, a, a, something that's nasty at one point in your life is a food or an opportunity or something like that at another point. So how do these reward systems interface with the other parts of the brains that are, to an extent, encoding good and bad? Yes. Well, I guess for the for for good and bad uh, of anything, whether it's food or friends or whatever, huge amounts of the brain are involved. So mm-hmm. all of these big subcortical structures, the brainstem and the basal ganglia, are involved, and probably even the cerebellum. But then, of course, there's mm-hmm. cortex. And what we don't know is very much about how cortex is involved. We think that frontal structures in particular play a big role, but exactly what that role is, there are, there are imaging studies that show that the, the frontal structures play a role in, in decisions that involve values, but we really don't understand the mechanisms at all. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, so, so much as I would like to be able to answer that question, I really can't. But the other thing is, is, you know, how is it that we do consciously, uh, sometimes come to a different view and it's not easy because if the reward system processes its information about appropriate norms, when you're pretty young, that's hard to get rid of. It's very Hmm. deep. And the example mm-hmm. I used in the book are, are my Catholic friends who dutifully ate fish every Friday until the Pope changed his mind. And then they thought, oh, I can't eat a meatball on Friday. I just can't. <laughs> just no I, know way, huh? I know it's not sinful. I know it's okay. I just can't. <laughs> and that's yeah. the reward system. That's a reward right. system that's been trained for a long time that the Friday meatball is verboten. One of my favorite chapters of the book, um, I think, Art, you, you agree, uh, is, the, is the chapter you mentioned just a minute ago about uh, fMRI data and how individuals respond differently to negative stimuli. Wonderful things like pictures of rotting animals and yeah. worms coming out of people's mouth and great things like that. And, and what those data uh, indicated is that um, your responses as an individual were a very strong predictor of your political beliefs. Yeah. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about those data and, and sort of implications? This is just so amazing to me too. I, yeah. I was blown I, away I, by this yeah. chapter. I thought yeah. it was really amazing. And the data came out of Reed Montague's lab. And I knew Reed very well because he was a postdoc in Terry Sanofsky's lab. And so I said, Reed, this, I... And I tried to kick those data, but, you know, Reed is very, very, very careful. 
Mm-hmm. And he uh, had thought of just about every contingency that you might imagine to explain away the data. But the data are the data. And it's not that the pictures in question are in any sense ideological. They're just negative. Mm-hmm. And so in the experiment, of course, um, subjects are in the MR scanner and they see many pictures, some of which are very nice, some of which are neutral, some of which are very negative. And it turns out that if after you do your, your viewing in the scanner, you also fill out a form about political attitudes called the Wilson-Patterson political attitude assay, which is very well validated and verified and so forth. Mm-hmm. It turns out that if you had a really strong reaction to just one slide, namely worms in the mouth, that you were likely to be quite conservative in your values. And if you had a very low reaction, you were likely to be quite liberal. Where are these areas? What areas are they? They're not areas that make any particular sense here. They're all over the place. Hmm. So kind of a generalized response. It's not like areas. there is a system that we knew about that, oh yeah, it's the, you know, the political the, system. The political it's nucleus, not, right? It's not huh. that. Huh. And uh, and so you think, what is this? And so then the question that John Hibbing, who is a political scientist and actually was very much involved in this experiment, Hibbing said, well, what do the behavioral genetics show about Mm. political attitudes? And the answer is that political attitudes, that is, are you quite strict about punishment? Do you like strong authoritarian figures? Uh, Are you very um, strict about sexual behaviors? Uh, questions having to do with that, um, people show quite a strong heritability in their political attitudes. Some people are live and let live, you know, I don't really care. Uh, and other people are quite strict about it. No, he's sure he deserves to be punished. No mercy should be shown. And it's not that there is a kind of absolute right and absolute wrong here. These are just differences that people mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. Now, when I say they're strongly heritable, I don't mean, first of all, that there is a single gene. All I mean is that they, in a population, they show heritability of about 40 to 50 percent. Now, that's right. not that's everything. Amazing. It's not, not everything, everything, but it's a lot. But it's yeah, a, a lot. lot. Yeah. The other thing, well, you you might want to ask me about something else in this experiment, but the other thing that I found astonishing in this experiment was this. Suppose I had a really strong response to the image of worms coming out of somebody's mouth. And then on uh, then I filled out the Wilson-Patterson, and then I also saw those pictures again, and I, I was asked to consciously assess how they affected me. And so I look at the pictures of worms in the mouth, and I think, nah, it didn't bother me too much at all. There is a disconnect, it turns out. Not an op- It's not that it's always opposed, but mm-hmm. you can't predict how someone will consciously say they felt about the worms in the mouth from how their brain actually reacted. 
So you might have a strong reaction in the brain and you might say you didn't care. Um, And we don't know why that is. Is it that I, when I say I don't really care, that I'm being kind of, you know, strong upper lip and, you know, hey, I'm a farm girl, I don't care about worms, uh, or what? Even though your brain is freaking out. What is it? Yeah. And we don't know. Was there any signal there? Is it disproportionately stronger in one direction than the other? Or is that the same for people that consciously identify as, well, that that take the test and, and identify as liberal versus conservative? Or is, is it the same the same sort of outcome? Oh, no, it's the same sort of outcome. That is, liberals okay. are not more knowledgeable about what their brains are doing than conservatives. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, isn't that <laughs> cool? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, so, mean, so, I mean, you know, to me, this this is sort of a bittersweet thing to talk about I in, know. In, in today's highly polarized conversa- political conversations. Yeah. So do you think, does, does this basic sort of neurobiology finding bear on you know, what we should think about political conversations and, you know, your, your optimism or pessimism about resolving political conflict going forward, which seems like it's just really ramping up. It does Uh, seem like it's ramping up. And I think, I think it is important in one way and it might have this effect, but maybe it won't. And that is to teach us that, you know, some of what makes us the way we are, are our genes. And some of it is how we're raised and how we're brought up. And we might have differences of opinion about lots of things, but we have to work together to make good things happen. You can't make good things happen by having civil wars. It never works. And um, so I'm hopeful that the story here might actually have a good effect. Um, I mean, I I have to say that <laughs> Bill Maher the other day on on Real Time with Bill Maher made the observation that it's as though millennials thought that they were the first generation to really see the moral truth, and the rest <laughs> of us, you know. But but it's a fact, of course, that. If I had been born in, say, South Carolina in 1770, I probably would have thought slavery was fine. I don't think it's fine now, but you are in part a product of your age. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea that, that some of us have a special line on the moral truth and the rest are just moral cretins is really not right. And it's mm-hmm. it's and it's so non-productive is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there has to be a way of making making progress in the social domain. And this this flurry of divisiveness that we see right now, where being outraged and offended is just you know the best thing to do, that will pass. People are going to get, well, they already are pretty much tired of it. It's kind yeah. of run its course. Okay, be yeah. offended, you know, get it over with. Um, and and I think more sensible positions will, will take place. Yeah. I mean, social life is never easy. Um, you know, as we were talking earlier, if you live in a small town, you know people that in a deep moral way quite horrify you. But you have to get along. 
and mm -hmm. you have to manage and do the best you can. Yeah. So um, it's not, it's never easy, but anyway, the, the optimistic part of the story is I kind of hope that this will, this chapter wherein I talk about Reed Montague's work will kind of soften people a little bit so that moral arrogance gets cranked down a little bit. Pat, can I ask you to, to sort of move out from the U.S. and our political disagreements, to put it nicely, um, now? And I mean, I, I, maybe I'm putting words into your mouth, but a couple of things that you said just a few minutes ago, I, I think I'm, I'm hearing this right. Um, but please stop me, correct me if I'm wrong. The, the idea, in a sense, is that we get our morality based on some cocktail of, you know, how the brain learns, its inherent constraints, and the environment it accidentally finds itself in. And if you take that complex system and put it in a in a particular place where, say, one culture disagrees with the practices of another culture, as you use the example for South Carolina, you end up with a situation where somebody doesn't appreciate what another culture would see as is, is an incredibly immoral thing. It's just something that they do all of the time. Yeah. Is that is that true? And if, if that's that's that is the case, I mean, how do we deal with this on a more you know a grander scale than, than just the U.S.? I'm not sure I understand <laughs> exactly <laughs> what the grander what the grander question is. I mean, uh, we also have have to get along with people from other cultures, and mm -hmm. I mean, this is just one small planet, right? Um, and there are better and worse ways of doing that. Of course, the one thing that we didn't kind of talk about, and I don't really much in the book either, is the nature of problem solving. Now, people used to call this reason, and philosophers like to think that they can figure out by pure reason what a rational person will do, and when they figure that out, we'll all do it, because mm -hmm. aren't we all, well, we're not. I don't know mm -hmm. what rationality really is. I don't know what pure reason really is. I kind of know what problem solving is, but the neurobiological fact is we know very little about what problem solving is. Mm -hmm. and, and with all due respect to Danny Kahneman, it isn't that there's two systems, a fast and a slow, and you know, psychologists like things coming in twos. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, but... Uh, we really don't know much about it. And uh, behavioral economics has done some really interesting work and some extremely misleading work, but what we really need is the neurobiology. We don't have it yet. And it's going to be hard. Can I can I circle back to Marty's question too and ask it in a, in a, in a slightly different way? Well, Well, so, you know, uh, your example of you know being being born in the, in the 1770s versus today and having a different sort of moral intuition about what's right. So another way of saying that is different cultures arrive at different mm. moral systems, and and what seems moral to one set of people may seem highly amoral yeah. to another set of people. And so, uh, is does that imply that there's a sort of neurological basis for moral relativism <laughs> among different groups or are, are there moral absolutes that emerge from from our brains i 
I think that what we all share is um, a disposition to be social. What we all share is the disposition to form attachments, strong attachments, especially to, to offspring and to family, but also to friends, also to strangers within a nation. So we, we certainly have that in common. And given the practicalities of life, there are kind of moral absolutes that emerge from that, but not much. What, what experience and living in a social community does is it shapes those moral motivations into specific norms and into specific expectations and ways of behaving. And the great ideal that contemporary philosophers have, namely that there are moral absolutes and moral universals and all we need to do is use our pure reason to figure it out, I don't think it's true. Now, it doesn't mean that moral relativism on the cheap is true, by which I mean it doesn't mean that anything is as good as anything else. And any group who, for example, is especially productive and prosperous and sees to the well-being of its members may well be critical of uh, a group that does things in a very, very different way. Um, so, so criticism is all part of how we change and modify and move mm -hmm. forward. So, so I don't believe in relativism on the cheap, meaning anything is as good as anything mm -hmm. else. It's right. not. There are moral facts about what is conducive to well-being, what is conducive to prosperity, and so right. forth. There are also many facts that we don't yet have about what is conducive to prosperity, for example. But even with, even, even with regard to well-being, you know, people have different values about what they want, what, what is conducive to their happiness. What makes me happy is not necessarily what's, you know, going to make my neighbor happy. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the problem with saying, you know, utilitarianism, maximize aggregate mm -hmm. happiness is, is, is the rational thing to do. No, no, actually, when you look closely, it falls apart. It's hard. <laughs> Moral life. I mean, Thousands this is the great lesson. Yeah. <laughs> we would have figured it out. Great lesson easy. of Aristotle <laughs> is, you know, listen, folks, it's hard. And, and I can give you a rule of thumb, which is, you know, don't go to extremes. But other than that, there's not too much I can tell you. <laughs> you did you did allude to the maybe there are some moral facts. And I'm wondering if one way to, to delineate those would be to sort of somehow ask or, or look in, in records about uh, similarities, share things that are shared among cultures. If there's some things yeah. that everybody has always agreed and will always agree now, how far do you, do you think, how big is that list and how far before we start to get into the disparities? I think the list is, is probably fairly substantial with regard to certain things. For example, care of children. That's clearly something, I mean, no, no group says boil your firstborn and eat it <laughs> and don't worry too much about what happens to the rest. They mm -hmm. don't do that. Um, 
Now, having said that, of course, there are very different styles of raising kids. So the Inuit are incredibly kind and good-natured with their children. They, and they don't, the, the interesting thing, this, this is a story about the reward system, really, is the kids pick, it all, pick up how to do things, skin an animal, catch a walrus, and so forth. They learn about that by watching and doing. They're never told, you know, you do it this way. You pick up the hammer and you <laughs> put down the nail. <laughs> they don't get instruction. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, just back to the, the main point, I think care of children, care of kin um, is, is also clearly uh, a very, very deep value. Uh, the Inuit are also interesting in that they did not tolerate deceit and lying. They also knew that within group fighting had to be uh, downplayed and discouraged. And so they had rituals for resolving disputes. Mm-hmm. Usually it was two men over a woman. Um, and they engaged in song duels. Each, uh, uh, each of the men made up a, a nasty song about the other. And the one that got the most laughs won. <laughs> <laughs> It's not too different from how we do certain things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and obviously games and play are important ways of resolving, resolving disputes in all communities. And we do that too. Um, so, so those are kind of, those aren't exactly articulable rules, but they're general points Um, Aristotle had a list of the various virtues, showing courage when it's necessary, showing kindness, showing um, generosity, not being mingy, not being deceitful. Those are values that I think we see in all all cultures. That doesn't mean everybody within the culture adheres to them. I think our culture greatly values honesty, but as we know, there are uh, many individuals, mm-hmm. so <laughs> some rather prominent, <laughs> who have a tendency not to value uh, truthfulness greatly. So, um, so I think what we see is not that there are specific rules that are common, but specific values that are very, very widely mm-hmm. shared. And anybody who travels yeah. knows that, you know. And, and it's, it's always interesting to me how transportable one's social skills actually yeah, are. It's sort of remarkable, right? I mean, as long as you're not a complete yeah. cretin, right? I mean, you go to Russia and you do some things that are very puzzling to people, like you smile at the doorman at the hotel and you say, good morning. And they think, holy crap, what's she doing? But with the really important things about deceit and generosity and kindness and compassion, right. those things right. are all, they're yeah. all there. So I think the values, and the, I mean, this is nothing new with me. This is what Aristotle, who after all was a man of the mm-hmm. world, I mean, he taught Alexander, and he, his father was a physician. He saw a lot of life. He wasn't sort of an ivory tower mm-hmm. philosopher. So those things, I think, are universal. But we are going to always see differences in how people conduct specific aspects of their business, how they regulate sexuality, for mm-hmm. example. Um, that's always going to be mm-hmm. a difference. And things change over time, it, you know. I mean, the Inuit were, they, they did mate for life, but they were also somewhat casual. Mm-hmm. 
they didn't worry too much. And if a woman really disliked her husband after a while, she just left him. Yeah, buggered off. I'm interested to, to ask you to look forward five or 10 years and tell us something about where the research on conscience or our understanding of conscience is going to go and anything about the techniques or sorts of experiment studies that are going to be happening to push it forward. Oh, that's also a, a very difficult question. I know that there is a lot of work being done on um where exactly oxytocin and vasopressin receptors are found. And there is a group at UC Davis who's finding them all over cortex, mm. uh, even in sensory parts of cortex, which is, is teaching us things like, why are they there? What do they do? What kind of system is involved? What are the pathways? And uh, so there's a huge amount of detail that I think we will learn about the reward system and about um, the interrelationship between cortex and subcortical structures. In animal models, uh, obviously the work of optogenetics is starting to play a huge role. So we're learning much more about decision-making and how many factors, including ongoing perceptions, as well as memory, as well as understanding of what you do and don't know, come into the little rodent braid and, and allow it to make a decision that is good for it. So there's, there, there are a, a lot of projects. Um, I think perhaps too that Political scientists may have a greater role to play in talking about large populations of behavior and what we can and can't expect. But that's not that's not neurobiology. So, mm -hmm. um, and again, if I may quote Francis, you know, he used to say because he was always being asked to predict things, and he'd say, "Well, <laughs> look, you can make a reasonable, interpretable prediction only about five." five years out, mm -hmm. maybe 10 in some mm -hmm. fields. But he mm -hmm. said, beyond that, you're just making it up. <laughs> <laughs> Call a spade a spade. Yeah. And and I, 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 I used to think that was a little bit harsh, but now it seems to me, yeah, basically that's, that's mm -hmm. right. I mean, he was fond of pointing out that in, even in 1960, shall we say, he and Watson had no idea of where DNA techniques would go and yeah. that they could be used, for example, in a legal context. <laughs> no, he said that never even crossed our minds. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, if anybody's mind it should have crossed, it was his, you know. <laughs> right. and, it, and if he never thought of that, that does tell you something about how... You know, unpredictable science and development actually is. So, yeah. yeah. Can yeah. I can I ask you a, a variant of this question? Then, I mean, I, I take the point. I, I think it makes sense, especially as fast as things move now. It's it's yeah. really difficult to predict. But um, the one thing that we haven't talked about at all is artificial intelligence. And yeah. That's growing rapidly, and there have yeah. been some conversations about whether it's necessary to have conscious artificial intelligence and whether or not there's you know requirement. We don't need to get into all of that. But can you see 
any utility for artificial intelligence in our understanding of conscience? Oh, possibly. Um, I, I don't have an example right now, but I think one of the things that we have to bear in mind is that AI so far doesn't really have any way of talking about the messy stuff of the brain, namely motives, drives, emotions, um, and even desires. I mean, an AI machine doesn't want anything. It doesn't <laughs> care about anything. And, mm-hmm. and that, I, that is a messy part of the brain. It involves modulatory systems, things like oxytocin and dopamine and serotonin, but, you know, tons of other things. Mm-hmm. And we really don't know very much about that. And we don't know how to build that into an AI machine, even if we wanted to, which we mm-hmm. may or may or may not. Mm-hmm. But of course, AI machines are terribly good at pattern recognition mm-hmm. because we tell them that's what they are yeah. going to get rewarded for. So they're very good at pattern recognition and they are picking out patterns in neurobiological data that we didn't know were there. Hmm. And that's always very useful, especially when you've got these really massive data sets. But you know what? We also need things like the human observation Mm -hmm. that will say, oh my God, that? Mm -hmm. Um, And we know we need it in the field for ethology, for animal behavior, because all the pattern recognition in the world isn't going to teach you that this chimp is consoling that chimp because that chimp suffered a defeat. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that a good observer like Franz Duval can see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Um, yeah, we'd like to amazing. we'd like to end also just by asking if there's anything else you'd like to say that we haven't covered. Uh, you know, any last thoughts? Not really, except that it's been a great pleasure to have this conversation so early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fantastic yeah, really to talk fun. it over. Really yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really yeah. enjoyed talking okay. to you well, about all and, this stuff. And thank you so much for this. I. Uh, it is, I think, an important message, but, you know, we're bombarded with so much stuff right now that sorting out what's an important message and what isn't is not always easy. Yeah, and it's nice Absolutely. to just sit down and have a conversation about it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's great. On the last episode of Big Biology, we talked with the evolutionary psychiatrist Randy Nessie about how evolution has shaped our feelings. That's a hard and sometimes uncomfortable idea to wrap our heads around. And Pat is going even further. Evolution not only shapes the way we feel, but it probably also shapes what we believe. The more we learn about neurobiology, the more we understand the origins of those beliefs. On the next episode of Big Biology, we're talking to Anurag Agarwal, a biologist at Cornell who studies the interactions between plants and insects. If you like what you're hearing on the podcast, please support us on Patreon. That's one of the most important ways for us to fund what we're doing. You can make a donation at patreon.com bigbio. And one of the benefits for becoming a patron is that you get to ask questions of our guests. Join now and send us your questions for Anurag. Another way to help is by recommending Big Biology to a friend. Think of someone you know who would enjoy the podcast and tell them about us. We also want to encourage you to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. 
Thanks to Matt Blois for producing the episode. Haley Hansen, Chloe Ramsey, Sarah Gazinski, and Lexi Salzer manage your social media channels. Michael Levine helps with social media and Patreon. And as always, Steve Lane manages the website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida for support. Music on this episode is from Poddington Bear.